0: What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, the interview with author John Fletcher episode. Since in the last episode, I touched briefly upon the end of the kingdom of Domnonia and the emergence of the kingdom of Cornwall, I thought it would be a good time to publish the interview I did recently with author John Fletcher. He is the author of a book, a very good book called The Western Kingdom, The Birth of Cornwall, available on Amazon.co.uk and in the UK, and eventually it will also be available in the US. In the interview, we talk a lot about the history of Dumnonia, about its relations with Wessex, and I think it's a very enlightening interview, and certainly I think the book itself is also extremely enlightening. If you are at all interested in this topic, I strongly recommend picking up a copy. Certainly it taught me things about Dumnonia and Cornwall that I wasn't aware of or had just forgotten, and it gave me a pretty interesting new perspective on the whole subject. That informed my past episodes that talked about it, and that will continue to inform my discussion of it. So again, the book is The Western Kingdom, The Birth of Cornwall by John Fletcher. I hope you enjoy this interview. So, first of all, would, it, would, it, would you be able to say a bit about yourself? So, introduce how you got interested in uh, Cornwall and Dumnonia.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, for, for your listeners, my name is John Fletcher. Um, I've just written a, a book about ancient Cornwall and Dumnonia, which is called The Western Kingdom. Um, I got interested in it when I went to Plymouth for university, actually, mm-hmm. uh, which was longer ago now than I care to remember. Um, but I was, uh, I was a, a Viking reenactor at the time. Um, I had a sort of general Viking character from when I lived in East Anglia, and I had thought, well, I've, I think the Cornish aren't the English, so there might <laughs> be something there." And I started reading into it, uh, and you know it, it turned into a bit of a rabbit hole, and um, I, I ended bit. up with these kind of masses of notes and texts and all this sort of stuff, and, and I sort of got to the point where I was like. Should probably write some of this down properly.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've definitely been there. It, this this whole period is kind of is kind of a rabbit hole when you really start getting down into it,
1: isn't it? <sighs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, as out of fashion and rightly so, the term is now. You can see why it was called the sort of the Dark Ages. It feels like there's there's a lot of information there that's there but not discussed or not really often talked about. So it's easy to sort of fall into. It's
0: it's definitely something I've kind of had to deal with, with uh, the podcast of how do you tell a history of this, where there's the information is so patchy and so many of the people may not have actually even existed. It's, it's a whole, a whole issue to to get into. Um, So how how would you, so obviously my podcast is about the Anglo-Saxons. So I don't know how familiar my audience would be with Dumnonia and Cornwall, but as you, as you know, it's it's a, it's a major part of West Saxon history in particular. So how would you introduce Domnonia or Cornwall to someone who doesn't really know much about it and sort of its place in larger
1: British history? Well, I, th- I think the best way to start, and one of the most important things when we're talking about this, is to start geographically, which sounds very basic. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way, where, where Domenia is and where Devon and Cornwall are now are, essentially the part of Britain that juts out into the sea on the southwestern um, tip of the island. Uh, Why I say it's important to start with that geography is because this we say that, and then people sort of picture in their mind the map and the way things are today, and and all roads lead to London, go across to Dover, to to Europe. But when we're talking about sort of the early medieval period and the period before that, any sea is a highway at that point. Sea travel is massively important. So Demonia is a country of Britons, of uh, Romano-Britons in the early medieval period, um, who are intrinsically linked on all sides to the sea, and they're linked to these wider trading networks in the Irish Sea, um, obviously with the, what will become the Welsh, with the Irish, with um, Amorica, and they've been that way for thousands of years. Um, one of the really interesting things about Demonia as a, as a sort of kingdom, if you like, in the early medieval period is that it Comes from a pre-Roman tribal name, the um, it It's they've been doing this for a long, long, long time, uh, to the point where Proscopius—I think I'm going to mispronounce this because my Greek's not very good—Proscopius, uh, I believe, um, writing, I think about 2000 BC, something like that, s- describes the southwest Britons and these these tin isles, and that they're very civilized up there. You know, they're not they're not as barbarous as everyone else. By which he means, you know, they're quite Greek. They're, they're Mediterraneanized, and that's because they've you know, been dealing with that. And right through the early medieval period, you know, that is the, at the heart of understanding pneumonia is that this is a maritime linked in kingdom. Um, and crucially, I've sort of touched on it there, it's one very focused on the tin trade and on this big extraction of, of wealth from uh, the southwest of Britain. Uh, I, I tr- the thing I try to avoid saying to people is anything about King Arthur, because mm. that kind of very quickly devolves into mythology and everything else. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a risk we
0: risk we run, particularly when you go to places like Tintagel. You know, it's all very this is the birthplace of Arthur, and it's <laughs> I think it's interesting because it's obviously it's obviously become a part of that region's identity, but it it doesn't really go too far back into, into the actual history. Although you touch a bit on it in the book, it's on a, particularly the figure of King Geraint. Um, my Britonic is very badly, is very bad. So forgive my pronunciations um, and sort of the difficulty of well, kind of the difficulty that a figure like he poses particularly in terms of Arthurian mythology and actual history. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe say a little about that cause I thought that was a really interesting discussion.
1: Yeah. so. The, the, the issue we have really when we look at anything to do with the Southwest Britons and we look at Demonia is that it has become so intrinsically linked with the mythology of Arthur. Um, Garant, in particular is really interesting because by the standards of Romano-British kings and particularly Demonian kings, he's very well evidenced actually, mm-hmm. you know, we've got a letter from the Bishop Aldhelm, mm-hmm. which is a little bit rude but it's there um more than a little bit (laughs) we've got a charter he issued um and we've got an elegy for him um or most likely for him i should say because it could be somebody else um which from welsh heroic poetry so this is a figure we actually can say as confidently as you can about any early medieval figure like you you've sort of touched on before that you're in the realm of myth at this point existed Unfortunately, his elegy also contains the very first mention or one of the very first mentions of Arthur and specifically Arthur, not sort of Ambrosius or a war leader of the Britons, but Arthur as an elegy for sort of kingship and war leading and glorious doomed charges. Um, But And that means that he's been pulled into this and it's gone to the point that I was aware that some people were arguing for a fourth or fifth century grant, um, Mm -hmm. particularly with the elegy for grant. Um, And I was kind of like, I had started looking into that. And and when you start looking into what they're saying, there are several logical leaps or mistranslations or other things they have done to essentially force this figure into the Arthurian, if we want to call it that, time period of the sort of fourth, fifth centuries immediately post-Roman Britain. because there's this mention of Arthur and therefore it must be part of the Arthurian mythos. Um, and it, it's very difficult because obviously there are good parts of Arthurian mythology mm. in the Southwest. I mean, you know, it, it is something that people rally around. And the reason it's in the poem is even at a relatively early stage, it was something that the Britons and the, the Kimri or the Welsh as they, as they became were starting to identify and rally around. So it is an important mm. part of this sort of national character. Um, but it's also a very overshadowing one. Uh, And essentially, you mentioned uh, Tintagel, which obviously had a lot of controversy with some of the decisions that English heritage have made in their presentation. Um, The the warrior statue, they don't actually call it an Arthur statue, but if you show a picture to an American tourist, it's (laughs) very quickly identified as Arthur, um, and carving Merlin on a Cornish cliff face, Um, (laughs) which for what is a hugely important early medieval site Mm -hmm. is a little bit I'm not sure i would go as far as disrespectful, but it's certainly not purely historical in your presentation. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I get obviously they need to get people coming and they need to get money coming in, but I agree with you. That that definitely pushes the boundary a little bit of of just making stuff up. Yeah. Um
2: The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So, five minute news is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.
0: Just a reminder that if you enjoy this show and want to help support it, want to help it to keep going, there are many different ways that you can do that. You can leave a like, or a rating, or a subscribe on whatever platform you use. That really helps to boost the show in the algorithm and get it recommended to more people. One of the more direct ways you can help out is by becoming a patron over at Patreon, where you will get access to bonus episodes, episode transcripts, and ad-free versions of all the episodes. I'm extremely grateful to every one of you who has already become a patron, and I have a couple more patrons to thank this week. So, Deacon Diedrich and Evan Shriver... Thank you so very much for your support. It is greatly appreciated and extremely helpful. So I, something I sort of wanted to touch on a little was, I think it's a really key point to get across. I've tried to get it across, and I think your book does a really good job of getting it across as well, that in this period, it's, it's bodies of water that connect people rather than land. Because um, certainly I know, if you look at any map of Britain in the early middle ages, you're always going to have these, oh, well, of course, you know, Cornwall and Devon and Somerset, of course, that's going to be part of Britain. Um, so, I mean, maybe you could expand a bit more on how Tintagel particularly and other sites actually really demonstrate that, that wasn't the case.
1: Yeah, I think that that is one of the really interesting things is some of the most important Southwestern sites we have for the early period are all on the coast. Mm -hmm. Um, There's Tintagel, um, Bampton, which is near modern-day Plymouth. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, There's Morecambe, which is actually just across the bay from Bampton. Um, These are all sites where we've got significant early medieval um, remains. Tintagel is actually really exciting because the timeline for occupation keeps moving more and more into the sort of later early medieval period, if you want to call that, sort of the Viking Age and things like that. And what we find there uniformly to a certain extent, although not always in the same level is Byzantine pottery. So this is pottery that's traveled from the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. Um, Evidence of that pottery being reused. And the really interesting thing about that to me is this isn't just a society that's consuming luxury goods. They are producing things or have enough knowledge to then reuse these things for their own goods. They're probably trading on with that. Likewise, we've got sort of smaller um, assemblages in other ways where there's just sort of workshops and things all set up on the beach. Everything is very marine focused. Um, and the, particularly the, the, the pottery is such a great example because that, that has had to come. It, it's, I'm not very good at it. I'm not, uh, you're, you're probably much more knowledgeable on pottery shirts than I am in depth, but. that far, but okay. <laughs> When you look at, you know, the type of Samian where it is, you can Mm -hmm. identify production in North Africa as part of the Byzantine Empire at the time of, I believe it's Justinian going out to try and reconquer Mm -hmm. everybody, Um, which means that it has had to come from the Mediterranean. And Mm -hmm. we can see even, as I said, thousands of years before that, they are shipwrecks off the coast of Israel with tin that was mined in Cornwall. There are these writers talking about these tin isles and these people who are very cultured and, you know, what they mean is Greek, rather than barbarian. Um, And the really other sort of one that kind of highlights how maritime focused they were is when you look at Brittany um, and to a certain extent, the um, very short lived Britain settlement in Galicia, Mm -hmm. because the the traditional story and the story which is still a little bit taught is that kind of the Romano Britons are fleeing the Saxons and they they run across the ocean and, and just end up in, you know, Mm -hmm. northern, northwestern France, Uh, and that's, that's why there's a a Britannic language speaking population there. Um, Just on the sort of surface level, there's a couple of problems with this. One is that in general, refugee populations don't usurp completely the culture and language of the area Mm -hmm. they land. Um, The other one is, how do you get all these people to that place safely, if they are fleeing, if they're, you know, if there's a desperate flight? Um, What it's very interesting and, and is made much clearer is when you take a map of these Britain settlements and the, on the European sort of continent, and then you put a geological map on top of them, there are tin deposits in Southwest Britain, in America, where Brittany is, and in Northern Spain. And those are the three major tin deposits in Western Europe. Um, wow. So this to me, and again, this is a th- I guess you call it sort of theorizing I put in my book, but as I say, it's supported by geological maps and things like that. This was a concerted effort to use the sea lanes to maintain their grip on the tin trade, which they had had even during the Roman period. I mean, they were giving it to the Romans. The, one, of, one of the noteworthy things about the Roman occupation in the Southwest is that there seems to be very little hint of resistance. The Dorotriges put up a heroic but completely doomed effort just to the east of them. And as far as we can tell, the demonians just go, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah. with the Roman trading network gone, with the sort of road focus to London, to all that, they are in a position where they have this commodity they want to shift to maintain their own power and prestige. And they make a move to do that. Something that is maritime focused, they send ships, they send men, and they, they don't occupy sort of Galicia they've set up an outpost in Galicia mm-hmm. but certainly in Amorica they are creating a new society essentially mm-hmm. um although admittedly one they've had long-standing cultural links with yeah
0: yeah I remember I remember because I I did sort of Britonic history for a bit at university I remember t- particularly the um the history of Elf Brit- Brittany being really fascinating I can't speak French so I couldn't really get into it in too much detail but um just like the fact that, as early as, if I remember if I remember it correctly, I could be totally wrong on this. As recently as the Second World War, Britain, Breton and Cornish were mutually incomprehensible, which is yeah. quite incredible if you if you think about it. Yeah. Um, certainly, if I remember it rightly, the whole narrative around Saxons pushing Britons into into Brittany is not really. It's still pushed by the French, but it's not really not really very widely accepted elsewhere yeah Um, i have to admit the the outpost in galicia was actually new to me i hadn't heard about that before um that was really fascinating
1: yeah it's by the standards these things i think it's around 100 years i don't necessarily call me on that without my notes in front of me but um it's much shorter lived it still exists as a bishopric that the catholic church can bestow upon somebody it's currently empty Um, but it's uh, basically the Bishop of the Britons in Mm -hmm. Galicia. Um, So it lasts, I think it's around 100 years. And then there's no like great tragedy. The the population just kind of merges with the the native Mm -hmm. uh, population. Um, And I think that probably represents that this was a stopping point on the way around sort of Spain and into the Mediterranean and probably was never out, out of difficulty of traversing and stuff, was never as... Mm-hmm. closely linked with the southwest uh, as um Brittany was. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah I was I was wondering if you could say a bit about because I know we talked at the beginning a little about how um the sources for this are incredibly patchy you know as is the way of sources with the early middle ages um it's so obviously we've done only with things like anglo Saxon chronicle and letters and welsh chronicles and heroic poetry and archaeology and things how how did you approach that when you were writing the book? How did you try to try, try to make sense of this patchy evidence while you were writing?
1: It, it's interesting because I think I was, when, when you approach particularly um, Cornwall in general, because obviously there's still a very strong botanic identity for Cornish people and Cornwall, there's a lot of grievances to a certain extent. So people want to know, you know, when did Cornwall become part of England? Mm-hmm. When did, you know, they, they invade us or do all this and I was, I, so I started with, okay, what do, what do historians traditionally sort of teach? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a very, well, it, it's recently become much more explored. Traditionally, it's not a hugely explored area, mm-hmm. um, which is weird when you think about it, because Wessex is so central to the English story. You know, this is the last kingdom to steal Bernard Cornwalls. You know, this is where England kind of is born. Mm-hmm. But this early story is just kind of there, but not really listened yeah. to. Um, so I started with, what did they, uh, and realistically, they kind of say, oh, the, you know, the West Saxons push West and the Britons get horribly slaughtered and then, so then Cornwall becomes part of Britain, uh, part of Wessex in 600 or 700 or 800, you know, they, they throw out these dates. all. Of, but, so then I said, okay, so what did the Saxons say? And if you read the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, what's really interesting is that in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle itself, it counteracts a lot of these traditional narratives. Um, so I have to say, you, 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 mentioned it in a recent or recent, as of this recording, um, mm-hmm. podcast as well, uh, Exeter, for example, when did Exeter become part of it? Mm-hmm. So the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says the border is set at the parrot and that, you know, yeah. uh, Ken, I think it's Kenwal wins a victory. Mm-hmm. So it's called there. Um, then it was WG Hoskins who wrote the Westwood Extension of Wessex, um, put forward this concept based on the fighter Boniface, the, um, Hagiography of, of Saint Boniface, mm-hmm. that Exeter becomes part of Wessex around this time in the mid six hundreds, based on the fact that Boniface enters a monastery in Exeter with a and it's described as Exeter or Exonchester Exeter at that point, yeah. and it has a um, English head which has, I believe is stem, but I could be wrong. i um, so, yes. Yeah. So that and that he puts forward that therefore they took all of Devon, which again, it's kind of one of these leaps of mm-hmm. okay, um, but you then go back to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and actually they're still describing battles around the parrot and kind of conflict in eastern Devon, western Somerset, which is a long way from Exeter. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and if you look at the West Saxon Church, it's based mostly further east still. You know, They're sort of Sherborne, Dorchester, I believe has been set up by this point. Um, so these aren't they don't gel, really, the sort of narratives, um, and the Saxons don't agree that it's sort of it gels. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle sort of describes this much slower kind of grind. It you know it uses phrases like hard battles against the Welsh um, mm-hmm. to describe progress. It's not a great sweeping sort of victory. Um, so then I had to sort of look at, as you say, sort of the other sources. What is you know what do we have from Devonia? And obviously Devonia, there's several challenges. One is that traditionally, and, and this is not true anymore, really, but has been true for a certain period, that British history is taught from the English perspective. Um, mm-hmm. it, it is you know, England and also there are these other people here. And that has changed over the sort of late 20th, 21st century. You know, There are lots of very exciting books about Scotland, about Wales, about Ireland, about all these other areas. Um, but it does mean that there hasn't been the research into the Southwest and to Cornwall. Mm-hmm. Um, But the other factor is it's very bad soil for archeology. span It's very acidic down here. Mm -hmm. Um, There's not huge amounts. Uh, And the third factor is that the place that held most of the native Cornish documents Glassney College burnt down during the Reformation, which is all not ideal basically for our purposes. (laughs) Um, But it doesn't mean there's nothing. So as I say, there are these sort of bits and you can see Mm These fascinating glimpses into the wider story. And then when you start to link those to the Anglo-Saxon version of events, you actually get some really interesting um, sides of the story, I suppose I could say. So if we use Grant, as I say, Grant's really well evidenced by the standards of the early medieval period. We have a letter from Aldhelm, who's the bishop, and he's telling him that the Western Britons are very, very bad and they're using their traditional tonsure and not calculating the date of Easter properly, which is very late because this letter is sort of the late 600s, maybe yeah. the early 700s. Mm-hmm. Obviously Whitby was 50 odd years before this. So yeah. it, it each has been settled even by the Irish at this point and the, the Southwest Britons are still doing it the way they've always done it because that's mm-hmm. the way they've always done it. Um, but the letter is really interesting in a couple ways. One, it describes um, Grant as king of the Western Kingdom. So Mm -hmm. the idea of basically everything west of where the Saxons are is ruled by this one guy. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also written with the expectation that he has the power to tell these bishops to get their act in order basically. Um, Then we we have is a charter, which uh, is from Grant to Aldhelm and is the first grant of land to an Englishman that -hmm. we know of in Daemonium, specifically in Cornwall, it's actually in Maca. Mm the maker uh, Maker as it's now known, but is from a Cornish word Mego, which means ruins. Um, mm-hmm. It's also sometimes referred to in earlier sources as Eglos Hale, which is the church on the um, estuary or on the mouth of the estuary. Mm-hmm. So it's probably a ruined religious institution that he's been, that he's given to Aldhelm. Um, and then the, the other thing is when you then put that against the anglo saxon Chronicles timeline, it seems to work. Mm-hmm. So Bede says that many of the people then follow the right way of thinking like Grant, uh, that Altham was very successful. Um, mm-hmm. There's no conflict between in the late 600s until 710 between Wessex and the Southwest Britons and Altham himself dies in 709. Um, so it's very interesting when you kind of put all these factors together that you maybe get a glimpse, it could all be coincidence as, as you know we always say with this so far ago, but you maybe get a glimpse of a time when there are these people, they're trying to make their best, the best foot forward, essentially, avoiding a war, you know, trying to, Grant had obviously either just lost a fairly serious engagement with Kenwall or had seen the Britons the east of him lose a very serious engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, he probably was playing for time, potentially. Owlshelm um, had these very important to eighth century churchmen concerns about the way people cut their hair and things like that. Um, and they seem to come to some kind of agreement. And then 710 is really interesting as well, because you get this um entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that In and his kinsman nun um fight uh Grant of the Welsh or Prince of the Welsh, something like that. Um and uh men, like, think many like things of many are or something like that I have to get the actual entry from me. And at the same time, we have an entry uh, or a, a poem called the Elegy for Grant, mm-hmm. uh, which describes a battle at a place called Longborth. Um, And this kind of heroic charge led by Garant of these horses, which is heroically doomed, as many Welsh protagonists tend to be. Um, But again, this kind of all these sort of links together. um, And interestingly, there is a place called Langport, which is smack bang in the the gap where Taunton now sits. Taunton being built by King-In a couple years later after that, basically. So you do start to get all these different things and they are very sporadic and sparse when you look at them on the paper, but you start to pull these threads together and see all these different links. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of archeology, span so circling back a little bit, I've also was very lucky that that has really exploded recently. And obviously the portable antiquity scheme have a lot of stuff now online. Um, Metal detecting seems to be a somewhat, what's the word? enjoyable pastime for people in the Southwest. There, there's been a lot of growth recently of reported finds, which is great, you know, that's what we want people to do. And that also sort of helped pull, pull some of this stuff together.
2: just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates.
0: So what, to what extent do you think, as you say, like traditionally British history has been written very much from the perspective of the English. To what extent do you think this sort of reassessment of Cornish history as interest in a Cornish perspective of history has been the result of the revival of, sort of, of a distinct Cornish identity or the popularisation of a distinct
1: Cornish identity? I think, I think they, certainly some of the biggest works on this from the Cornish perspective have been relatively recent. Things like Craig Weatherhill's Promontory People um, and Bernard Deakin um, wrote a book called The Go- Cornwall's First Golden Age, which is all about the early medieval period. Mm-hmm. I think those are very much coming from what we might call a nationalist sort of standpoint, um, because there has been this renewed interest in, in a Cornish entity in the Cornish language. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. the Cornish language uh, is what I'll use the word functionally extinct in terms of there are no people born speaking only Cornish, um, mm-hmm. but there are people still learning Cornish. There's something like 500 speakers and growing Um, I think what's happened more so, it's one of these sort of chicken and the egg sort of things. People feel like their heritage is under threat for some of the reasons we've discussed. You know, there's a feeling that maybe it's not taken seriously as part of the story of Britain, of sort of these isles, that there is this sort of Britannic element in the Southwest. Um, There are wider social issues about second home ownership, uh, the cost of living crisis down here in particular, Um, and there is feelings, very strong feelings often, that being Cornish is you're running out of the ability to be Cornish in Cornwall because you're being priced out, you're being, um, I suppose, educated out by, you know, English speakers or people from upcountry coming down. Um, And I think that instinctively makes people want to learn more about their past, and that does pull Good and bad, Forward. I mean, as I say, the two books I've mentioned are both actually very good books. Um, You can tell where their sort of loyalty lies if you like, but they are still good academic works. Um, There are much less academic works floating around on um, the internet or on various sort of magazines and things like that. One of the really interesting things for me about the kind of where Cornish nationalism and the traditional English story collide is that some of the worst stories that come out of the English side of this um, which are probably factually untrue, they don't really match up to anything, are embraced really heavily by by sort of the people who are real diehard nationalists, because it fits this model to them of the English being these horrible um, oppressors. And, you, you know, we have any examples. Yeah, well, the, the, the famous example is Geoffrey of Monmouth and the burning of Exeter by mm-hmm. Um So Geoffrey um, tells us, and there's reasons to suspect he did, that he took a, a journey down to Exeter and essentially interviewed locals, and this is in the uh, 14th, 13th century, mm-hmm. um, and asked them for history basically about Athelstan, who was obviously the, the man who paid for the foundation of Monmouth, so gets a very glowing review in most of Geoffrey's works. And the ladies of Exeter basically tell him that um, Athelstan burned the Cornish out of Exeter and drove them with whip and sword and flame out and, you know, in over the Tamar and set the border at the Tamar and, you know, I think sometimes it gets included that there's a campaign into Cornwall and he burns and slaps his and kills and all this sort of stuff. Um, there's very little evidence for any of that, basically. Mm-hmm. As we've already, as I've kind of touched on, you know, Exeter does get, if you like, given by historians to the English very early sometimes, but mm-hmm. realistically by the m- middle half of the, eight, of the 700s, it is firmly in English control. Mm-hmm. There may well have still been Britannic people who lived there, but in terms of political control, it was very much under the, mm-hmm. the control of Wessex. It would also be very uncharacteristic for Athelstan to just suddenly go on a genocidal campaign. Yeah. Um, one of the sort of things that's really interesting about Athelstan as a, as a historical character, if you like, is that he is the Saxon king who kind of understands that the Welsh and the Scots and the Vikings aren't going anywhere. They all live here now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be better to be king of all of them than to try and slaughter them all to force them to accept his rulership. yeah, And, you know, that's what makes him king of all, you know, rex totalis Britannum, is mm-hmm. that he get, t- accepts tribute, accepts, you know, surrender from these people. So yeah, just suddenly going on a, on a sort of burning and pillaging streak in the Western part of his kingdom for no apparent reason would be very out of character. And we have no other sources about this. Literally no one mentions it. It's not on the Welsh channels. It's not in any of the Irish channels or anything. Is not in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Like no, no one, no one mentions this strange thing, but it is still embraced very hard by certain people um, because it kind of puts across this horrible English people. And as I say, we shouldn't kill ourselves. You know, early medieval period is a nasty, bloody time at the times. Yeah. There were plenty of you know King Inna, for example, who um, kills Garant writes a law code, which says that the Britons in his newly conquered um, realms are worth half of what the English citizens are um, mm-hmm. in terms of compensation and gold and stuff. He was probably not a very nice man to you know, live under if you were a Briton.
2: Probably not, uh, no. Yeah.
1: So there are elements of this um, which are you know normal for the time period. But it's interesting how these stories get swapped from, I suppose, both sides, if you like.
0: Yeah, it to me, it raises an, it raises a question about Obviously, it's very easy to think about these things in terms of Wessex, Dumnonia, Wessex, Cornwall, and very firm line. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Boniface, and potentially Valhelm, kind of goes against this. Can we really say anything about like, the smaller scale, ordinary people, presumably people, travelled between Wessex and Cornwall, and how that might have shaped the identity of the regions?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think we can. Um, there's been some interesting linguistic work, um, which looks at sort of place names and when they appear in certain areas, uh, which suggests that there may have been some Saxons um, or English speakers, I should say, living in what was still firmly Demonian territory prior to um, the parrot being crossed as a border. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, as I say, Demonia is a trading country, if you want to call that trading kingdom. It would be, be uncharacteristic in that context to basically say no, no English speakers here. Um, you, you can draw comparisons to, example, um, for Scandinavian people who were living in England during and before the Vikings were put burning and pillaging the place down. Mm-hmm. Not everyone is in locked in a combat, and ordinary people throughout history are just trying to make a living. And if you have goods to trade, you probably you will go where they are needed or where you'll get a good price for them. And realistically, if people want them, they will probably let you in. Um, so I think there are sort of these hints of English speakers in pneumonia. Um, you have pre- an earlier example of this happening with the Irish. Um, obviously sort of in folk tales or folklore, there's Tristan and Assault there's all these tales about the Irish coming and raiding and burning and stuff. We have some evidence for that because we have Ocham no. um, oh, uh, stones um, in Devon and Cornwall. Um, But what's really interesting about the Devon and Cornwall examples is that they contain the the memorial is in Ogham, which is Irish writing, which is a bit like runes, but not really um, for people who haven't seen it before. Um, But the way they're laid out, rather than being the traditional format is basically um, Dave, son of Jim, you know, obviously more early medieval Irish names. um, Then that's it. That's kind of. That's, it's his name. Yeah. It's my dad's name. The, the ones once Demonic Cornwall start to show Latin things, basically saying raised in memory of mm-hmm. Dave, son of Jim. So that it's taking on a Latin format for a traditional Irish um, memorial, which suggests that they're actually becoming integrated into that Dominion society, that sort mm-hmm. of Latin speaking society. Um, and there's no reason to say that there wouldn't be Saxons who are doing exactly the same. If we go to the Boniface story, um, we can, I think, the Vita is written by his apostle, I think, whose name completely escapes me. Um, but it was, yeah, it was written in sort of the, the middle of the 8th century. Um, so it was after the saint died. And this guy waited a little while before he wrote it as well. Um, so all I think it can be a good resource. But we just need to bear in mind that it doesn't tell us about the 600s. It tells us about the mid-700s. Yeah. So I think you can take from that that probably by that point, they are calling it Exchester. It has stopped being Iskertum norm as it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think also you could still take from that that there was a Saxon leader of this monastery or teacher of this monastery who Boniface um, interacted with. And I think the thing to take from that is not that this is a English institution or this is English control. It's that there were English adherents to Christianity in Britonic institutions. And there's nothing distinctly unusual about that. You know, um, later on, we have evidence of um, a Cornish bishop who also uses an English name, Wolfsig Como, who spent time in Glastonbury Abbey. Um, mm-hmm. Aldhelm writes about visiting, uh, I believe he calls it diademonian dreadful Cornwall or something like that. Mm-hmm. Again, not a big fan of the Southwest, but um, in fairness <laughs> to him, there's apparently a storm that rips the roof off the church he's staying in. So it was probably mm-hmm. not a great trip. Um, but he's he's journeying through this through these lands completely, yeah. you know, un, unhindered, not being attacked by angry woad painted Britons or anything like that. <laughs> um, so I think we have to be aware that borders in the early period, in general, are very fuzzy things. They're not. Yeah. There's not a line where a guard checks you as you cross it or anything else. There are kind of people on either side who may or may not know who their particular lord is, al- is aligned to at that moment. Yeah. Um, and I think particularly in a trade focused kingdom as the money appears to be there is every reason to suspect that ordinary people were moving back and forth across these borders. Yeah
0: yeah and during certainly given how complicated the history of western expansion was as you've (laughs) explained it in the book like I think it's totally reasonable that they some people might not know who their lord was at the time. (laughs) Yeah Um, I see that we are in the final five minutes of my zoom time. Um, Where I think one last question I wanted to, to ask is, you mentioned that you're a reenactor. Yep. How did that kind of, kind of shape your
1: approach to this or your work on this? I think that's, for me, that's very, it was very foundational because as mm-hmm. I say, it was about initially way back when I was sort of 19 and um, keen, making this kind of character, this presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, what reenactment is really good at is trying to get into the heads of ordinary people at that time. Um, So I've spent a lot of time, you know, sifting through finds, looking at settlements and trying to imagine, you know, not just there are these big sweeping battles and these Kings and things clashing in, but how are people living? How are they, what tools are they using? What crafts are they doing? You know, Mm -hmm. what, what do we have evidence for um, for day to day life? You know, I actually my living history which is where we sort of show general sort of life stuff is a tinner set up so I've got um castorite gravel um tin ingots and finished sort of products of tin and I can talk to people about you know this was this was really important in the southwest in the medieval period in the industrial period in the roman period you know this is really the sort of the, the center thread of, of local history um and this is how they mined it in the early medieval period you know and I've, I've been able to look into that and do that research, um, starting from a kind of, what would a person who lived in this time period do? Um, And then from that, you get sucked into the bigger events. You get sucked into the Garants' Glorious Death and Kingin's Laws and uh, Tintagel and its links to the wide world. Um, But reenactment really, when it works best, shows you ordinary people in a completely different time period and highlights that, although things are different, people are very, very similar. Um, And that's one of the things I always try to sort of say to people is these are still people, you know, they are primarily concerned with making things a little bit better for their children than they are for them, making sure they have food on the table. Um, We and we should bear that in mind rather than just focusing on, you know, big flashy battles and this sort of stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think I agree. I think that. I mean, really. Biologically, certainly they're no different from we are. They engage with the world in the same way that we do, and they presumably have the same interests that we do. Well, not quite the same. They don't know what right do <laughs> or anything, but you, you get the point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, where where can people like find you and
1: find out more about you and your and what yeah. you do? Um, okay. So, from a marine app point of view, we are uh, Morvleith, which I'm going to spell because it's a Cornish word, uh, <laughs> which is M O R V L E Y D H. Uh, which is the Cornish word for seawolves, which is uh, both the name for sharks and also the name for seaborne raiders, yeah. basically. <laughs> um, but yeah, we do a, a sort of Viking Cornish history. Um, you can find us on Facebook, and I also do sort of weekly posts about Cornish history or a particularly interesting find or artifact, something like that. Um, and obviously you can read my book, which is on yeah. Amazon, which is The Western Kingdom, The Birth of Cornwall, um, which I, I, I would recommend. be very happy to. did. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad <laughs> you enjoyed it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, uh, uh, that's the main, main way to find me. And I'm also on Instagram just right. with pictures of me in reenactment kit, which is very dull for many people I can imagine, but um, I was told it was the way forward.
0: <laughs> no, I, I think that sounds very interesting. I'd definitely follow that, but I guess I'm one of those people. Um, but yeah, it's it's been great to talk to you. Thank you for, for talking to me about everything. I, I'm sure my audience will be very interested in it.
1: Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Just a reminder that this episode was an interview with the author John Fletcher about his new book, The Western Kingdom, The Birth of Cornwall, available from Hive or Amazon, and very much worth picking up if you're interested in this topic. Once again, I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode. Until next time.